welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. a series called Outcast. Matthew chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Ruth chapter 1, if you want to turn there, we have been looking at some outcasts that we find in the Bible. And we find them specifically from Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins to write down a genealogy that is the ancestors of Jesus Christ. And, and there's 47 names in this genealogy, but we find five that, that just don't fit very well. And, and the reason for this is, at this time, genealogies were always, always, always uh, come down through the men, through the paternal part of the family. And yet in Matthew chapter 1, we see that he records five different women in the genealogy. It's unheard of for the time that this was written that the women would be included. And so I had this question, why are these women in this genealogy? Well, what made them so special that God had them recorded in his holy word as something that we wanted to associate with Jesus? I'm thinking they've done great things for God. They must have, they must have really been special. They must have been perfect in every way. But when you get into their story, what we find out about these five women is that all of them were outcasts. That they all had dirty, horrible lives. They made lots of mistakes. That they didn't live the way that, that we would have expected them to. And so we've been asking this question, why, why does God put them in this genealogy? Why do they get this place of honor? And what we find is that Jesus Christ is not ashamed of the outcasts. Jesus Christ is not ashamed of the unworthy. Jesus Christ is not ashamed of those who have made every mistake in the book. Jesus Christ is proud of not what they were, but what they become with him. And so we've been looking through the story of them. We, we looked first at Tamar. Last week we looked at Rahab. And this, this week we're going to center on Ruth. And, and Ruth is an excellent story. She's the only person in this genealogy that has her own book of the Bible, the book of Ruth. And, and I love the book of Ruth because it's, it's a story within itself. It's got everything you could ever want out of a story. It's got action. It's got tragedy. It's got love. And it's got a happy ending. I've told you before, it's a Hallmark movie in the Bible, okay? And so this, this story of Ruth we're going to look at today, and we don't have time to do the whole thing, but we're going to center on one part. So let me get you some background here. The book starts off saying that this happens in the time of the judges. And if you look in your Bible, there is a book called the Book of Judges. And after the conquest of Israel by the Israelites, when they come in and God gives them this land that we looked at last week, after this time, the Israelites, after seeing everything that God had done for them, they fall away. They go on and do their own thing. They worship. They worship false gods and God goes, that's enough. I'm pulling back my protection for you. I'm, I'm done taking care of you until you repent of your wicked ways. And, and all the Israelites, they, they find themselves in deeper and deeper trouble until all of a sudden they cry out, God, you got to help us. You're supposed to be our God. Why aren't you protecting us? Does that sound familiar? That sounds a lot like my life. I don't know about y'all. It sounds like how I've lived my life at times. And at that time, God raises up a man he calls a judge to come be the savior of Israel, to save them from whatever problem they're in. And we, we see uh, judges in this book like Gideon. You may know Gideon. He defeated an army with like 200 Israelites and just some lamps. They just pretended to be a bigger army. We see people in here like, like Samson who had superhuman strength defeating Philistine armies by, by his hands. And it, it's at this time that the book of Ruth takes place. 
place. And it starts off telling us about a relationship between Elimelech and Naomi. And what happens is they leave Israel and they go out and they have two children. And these two sons marry what the Bible says is Moabite women. And one of those Moabite women is Ruth. And it's not very long after that that the three men die. Both husbands, or both sons and the husband, leaving Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, widows in a land deserted. I'd call them outcasts. Now, Naomi comes to her daughter-in-law and she says this. She's like, I've got to go back to Israel. I've got to go back to my family. It's going to be a horrible life. I'm not married. I'm too old for this. Um, and, and you ladies, you're young and you're pretty and you have a future ahead of you. Go back to your families and find new husbands. Don't worry about me. This is, this is just where God's taken me in life. Go to your families, remarry, and go on with your life. And one of the daughter-in-laws, she says, okay, she cries, she weeps, she hugs, and she kisses Naomi, and then she goes back to her family. But, but Ruth comes to Naomi, and she says, I'm staying with you. I'm sticking with you. You're my mother-in-law, but I'm sticking with you. How many of you want to be that close to your mother-in-laws? <laughs> Not very many of us. I'm, I'm sorry, Tammy. I'm sorry. She's here this morning. That was a bad joke for a day my mother-in-law is here. No, I'm kidding. But she, she says, I'm sticking with my mother-in-law. And so that's where we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 1. I want to read verses 16 and 17. I just want to look at what Ruth says and the heart she says it in. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part me and thee. Or part thee and me. And so Ruth comes to Naomi and she says, Look, um, I don't think you understand the amount of commitment I have here. I'm going where you go. I'm making your my life my life. And she ends up at the very end of it and goes, I'm going to die wherever you die at. That's, that's my commitment to you. Wherever you choose to die, I die at. And, and what I'm going to call this this morning is this big move made by Ruth. This big move that she makes and the decision that she makes. And I, I want to understand just how big of a move it is for Ruth to come forward and say this to Naomi. She, she's already a widow. She's, a, she's poor. And when I say she's poor, I don't mean she had to cancel NFL Sunday ticket on her cable package. I mean, she's a beggar. She has nothing. And she's committing herself to Naomi to say, I, I choose to continue this life with you. I choose to, to be poor as long as I'm with you. I choose to be a beggar as long as I'm with you. I, I choose to go where you go. And so she says this. This is where you go, I will go. And this is a big deal because Ruth is a Moabite. And what that means is she is from a country that is to the east of Israel, a little country at that time that was known as Moab. And so she will be a Moabite in Israel. This is the, 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 how big this move is. That's like me and you saying, I'm moving to China. Or I'm moving somewhere in Africa. I'm moving away from everything that I know, my entire family, and I'm moving to a different country. And I'm giving up my life from where I'm at and going to a new country. Moabites in Israel would have been big outcasts. They would have been the dirt on the bottom of somebody's shoe. So when she says, I'm going to Israel, it's not just that I'm going to find a new home. It's that I'm going somewhere that I will not be accepted. And we find out that the Israelites, they don't like Moabites. And here's the reason. If you go back to Genesis, we figure out where the Moabites came from. 
In Genesis, it tells us a story of Lot, Abraham's brother. And Lot makes some bad decisions in his life. He, he's not exactly who Abraham is. And after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, his two daughters, Lot's two daughters, look around and say, there's no more men for us to marry. God has killed them all for their sinful ways. And they hatch this plot. Well, maybe, maybe we can get pregnant if we can get our father drunk enough. And the first son born out of that was named Moab. And that's where the Moabite people come from. And so when Israelites look at, at the Moabites, they say, I see your unclean genealogy. I see your, your, your dirty, you know, incest background of you as a family. Today, we might call that racism. I think it might be tribalism. Israelites looked at Moabites like they were the scum of the earth. And Ruth comes to Naomi and says, I choose to accept a land that will not accept me. I choose to live in a place where I will be hated and outcast as long as I go with you. She comes back up to Naomi and she says, your people will be my people. Your people will be my people. Now, once again, big move. We need to understand what she's saying here. The Israelites and the Moabites hated each other. They were always at war with each other. They were always fighting each other. In fact, in Judges 3, we see one of the judges named Ehud. He assassinates the king of the Moabites, starting a war that results in 10,000 Moabites being killed. And Ruth says, I choose to leave my side to go live with my enemies. And not only that, I choose to leave my country to go with my enemies. I choose to leave my people to become a part of a new people. That's a big move. And so she says, I'm willing to accept people that will not accept me. And maybe the biggest move of all is what she says in the middle here. She says, your God will be my God. Now, this is not just a saying of like, I'm going to find, you know, I'm going to have a new idol in my house. She's talking about turning away from the gods that she was raised with to worship the one true God, to, to, to go with Naomi's God. And what we need to understand about the Moabites is they worshiped a national deity known as Chemosh. He, he was the national deity. He represented Moab. And we know from the Bible that Chemosh was, uh, was worshiped with human sacrifice. In 2 Kings, we see a Moabite king take his own son, sacrifice him publicly to this false god. And we look at Ruth, and if you've read the book of Ruth, like Ruth is full of grace, and she's full of poise, and she's, she's beautiful in every way. We can read it from the scriptures. Like, Ruth, Ruth didn't have anything to do with that. Ruth would have never lived a life like that. But that's what the Bible means when it says Ruth was a Moabite. She grew up in a culture where that was normal. Nobody told her it's wrong to sacrifice family members to pagan gods. Nobody told her that that was unholy and that you shouldn't do that. She, she would have, that would have been normal to her. And she would have been a worshiper of Chamash. And so what's detestable to us was normal to her. And she said, I choose to leave a God that inspires such inspiration that people kill their own children. I choose to leave that lifestyle, Naomi, to follow your God, to follow Yahweh, to follow the one true God. And so Ruth makes a big move to accept a God that should not accept her. Now, here's what she says. I'm going to leave my home. I'm going to leave my people. I'm going to leave my God to go where you go. That would be the equivalent of my wife saying, I choose to leave Brian and my family. I choose to leave America. I'm going to denounce my, denounce my citizenship and go to Iran and become a citizen of Iran. And I'm going to become a Muslim instead of a Christian. This is the kind of move that Ruth is making. It's a big life change. It's not as simple as being like, hey, I'll tag along. I, I give up everything. I give up everything to follow you. You know, I've looked at this move that Ruth makes, and I find that, isn't that what we ask of people when we ask them to follow Christ, is to make a big move? To, to give up our gods, 
of personal wealth or respectability or, or being famous, to give up our gods of the, of the hobbies that we have that God's not pleased with and make a big move to follow God. And so as I look at this, I see the story of the gospel of, of, of Ruth making this move towards God. And I have to ask, what is motivating Ruth? What makes a person make a move like this? We need to know this because as we go out into the world and we're expressing our love of Christ to people and we're telling them about Jesus Christ, they're making a big move. I want to know what makes somebody get to that point where they get there. And if you read the story of Ruth, the only thing that pops out of why she's willing to do this is her relationship with Naomi. Her relationship with Naomi causes her to make this big move towards towards being a follower of the one true God. Our first take-home truth is this, is that there is gospel power in relationships. There is gospel power in relationships. And here at Ramsey Heights, this is our plan to share the gospel with the world, is using relationships. Uh, let me just put it this way, just so we can all be clear. I, I want you to raise your hand. If you came to be a follower of Christ because a stranger you had never met walked up to you on a sidewalk and handed you a piece of paper and said, God loves you, would you raise your hand? Nobody. If you came to know Christ because you were introduced to him by somebody that you had a relationship with or somebody you had a relationship with took you to church where you were introduced to Christ, would you raise your hand? Keep your hands up and look around. Like, let's do that, right? That, that seems to be working. Let, let's, let's, let's build relationships that allow us to share the gospel message. This, this is our plan. I'm not going to invite the circus out here and in between the lion tamer and the elephant slip up there and try to say something about God and pretend that we are witnessing to people. That's the lazy way out. We're not going to slip pieces of paper in people's mailbox like we're trying to sell them a new cable package and pretend that we are witnessing to people. That's the lazy way out. We're not going to wait for the pastor to go out and do all the work. That's the lazy way out for y'all. I mean, it would be a lot of work for me. I couldn't be lazy and do that. That's the lazy way out. See, it is the job of the church to spread the gospel. And that's why at the end of every service, we end by saying the Great Commission, and, and we've, we've tweaked it. Instead of quoting Scripture, we've, we've applied it to ourselves. It is my calling. It's our calling together as individuals to spread the gospel. And so we spread the gospel as a church by building a relationship with our community, doing exactly what we're going to do on the 31st. We're just going to serve and love. We don't expect anything from you. Don't pay. Don't donate. Don't. We just want to serve and love you and let you know that God loves you and we love you to this community. We, 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 we witness to people by leveraging individual relationships that we already have. That means our work friends and the people that we're related to and then the people we meet, we have the opportunity to open that gospel discussion with them. And we witness to people by building new personal relationships with complete strangers. And you're just sitting there thinking, is that all? <laughs> like, I've got to walk up to a stranger, become best friends with them so I can tell them about God? That must be easy for you, Brian. It's not easy for me. Everybody in this room is down to one of two things, or one of two categories. Some of you guys are extroverts. And the second I said, we're going to meet new people, you thrive on social interaction. You're ready to meet people. You're best friends with everybody when you walk into a room. And your family is physically holding you in the pew because as soon as I said, we're going to meet new people, you were trying to run out the door. Like, let's do it. And if that's you, you can go ahead and go. The rest of this isn't probably for you. But most of us, and myself included, we, we fall on the other side. We're introverts. That's stressful. 
I have four close friends outside of this church. Three of them I've had for 15 years or longer. Two of those three I've had for 25 years or longer. I don't make new friends well. I'm with you on the introverted thing. It's hard to make new personal relationships. And so I thought, well, how do we do it? If this is our model for witnessing to people, how are we going to build relationships? And I started researching. And I'm the person that Googled how to make new friends, <laughs> how to make new relationships. And here's what I found is that this is a major topic in the business world. And the business world kind of exists of people making connections and building a network of resources and people that help them climb the corporate ladder. And so psychologists and self-help artists and all of these people come together and they're trying to give tips to people in the business world. How can you as an introvert make relationships with people um, and start to build meaningful connections? with them. And here's my thought process. And here's what I want to say to, to us as a church. If people in the business world can do it for money, you and I can do it for the cause of the gospel. If we can learn to make new relationships for the love of money, we can learn to make new relationships for the love of God. And so you might be expecting that I'm going to teach you a sales pitch here. Like, like we're going to be selling used cars to people. This is how you do it. You go up and you say this and you say that. And then when you get them to the right point, boom, gospel in their face. As a matter of fact, uh, we went through an evangelism class at one time, Jessica and I did. And, and I was really kind of dismayed at how they, how they approached this. They, they, they gave you a pamphlet. And the pamphlet was excellent. It described the gospel in great detail. And I remember halfway through the class, he said, now listen, um, as you're doing this, make sure that you don't pause because they'll start asking questions. We don't want them to ask questions. Just, just get them to the end, and then you say, uh, so do you want to go to heaven or not? And if they say yes, and they say, okay, well, will you say these words to go to heaven? That's not what we're doing when we're talking about building relationships. Because what that causes is a lot of people to shake their head to a question they don't understand and think they've got it figured out when they've never truly come to know Christ. And so we want opportunities to have deep, intellectual, gospel-centered, multiple conversations with people about their need for Christ and Christ's love for them. And we're going to start easy. The first thing, number one, is we're going to start with a smile. Everybody smile for me. Can everybody smile? Some of you need to go get a mirror and work on that. It's been so long since you've smiled, you don't know how to do it, right? Somewhere, some, some, somewhere, somehow, somewhere along the way, somebody told Christians that your job and part of your holiness is being grumpy, being holier than everybody else and letting everybody know that you're miserable being around them as sinners. Like, I hate everything. That, that's not what the gospel calls us to be. That's not the kind of person we want to be. And we're not going to share the gospel with people looking like we hate everybody and everything. It's not going to happen. Marriott Hotels has just a little under 4,000 locations in 74 different countries worldwide. And they are consistently ranked in the top 10% in customer satisfaction and customer service. Across 74 different countries, 74 different cultures, 74 different languages maybe. How, how on earth did they do this? It must be magic. Like they're hiring really good people. They're paying lots of money. They're doing, spending a lot of money and training people on how to be personable. That's not it. They have a very simple rule. They work on something called a 15-5 rule. It's very simple. Every employee of that hotel, whether it's the front desk manager, the maid, or the maintenance man, is trained in the 15-5 rule. And that means if you get within 15 foot of a customer, you make con eye contact, 
you smile and you nod your head. That's it. That's all you have to do. I look stupid, I know. That, that's all. That's it. That's, that's the 15 rule. Like, just smile, make on, eye contact. I see you, I acknowledge you. Hi, how's it going? I, I, I'm, I'm awkward with that. I'd kind of be the guy going, you know. But it works. Customers feel valued and appreciated because people make eye contact and just acknowledge their presence. And if you come within five feet of people, you add an extra step to it. If you come within five feet of people, you acknowledge them verbally. Eye contact, smile. Nod your head, wave. How was that pool? Did you guys come a long way? Can I get you anything? I love your purse. Just anything as you're walking down the hall to acknowledge them. And that simple rule has transformed their entire culture when it comes to customer service. We look at people and acknowledge people. How would our life change as Christians if we lived with a 15-5 rule? If we smiled at people, if we acknowledged them, if we love them. And I know what some of you are thinking, like, it's the wrong time to be smiling at people, Brian. <laughs> like, it's not going to work right now. Smile is a whole face. And maybe right now we need smiles more than ever in the world, even if they're behind a mask. You can still acknowledge people by smiling. And this is something I've wanted to address for a few weeks and add this in here. I think before we plan to take this to the world, maybe we need to start practicing that in our building. Acknowledging people as they come in, acknowledging visitors, and acknowledging each other. Did you guys know we have had 15 new members in the year of 2020? 15 people that have come here and said, I want to be a part of the family at Ramsey Heights. Can we praise God for that for a second? I mean, that's amazing. If you had told me at the beginning of the year, said, Brian, um, there's going to be a pandemic. Church is going to let out for two months. When you come back, everybody's going to wear a mask. You can't hug. You can't handshake. You've got to stay six foot away from each other. And you're only going to have one service a week. I would have told you, 2020 is a wash at Ramsey Heights. We're, we're going to try to keep the doors open. We're going to do the best we can, but I'm not expecting lots of things. And if you had told me we would have 15 new people come say, I, I love this. This is my home, and I want to be a part of the family. I would have rolled around on the floor laughing. <laughs> But God did it. And I got news for you. God's not done yet. But listen, some of us that have been here 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 years, it is time for us to break our normal habit of coming in and saying hi to the people we've been here for 20 years with and going and sitting in our chair. And we need to start to pull in our new family and acknowledging them and growing with them and building new relationships with them. And if you're one of those 15 people I've just talked about, I want you to know you are loved here. And this church loves you. I know the heart of this church. I know the heart. But what I'm talking about is are we expressing our heart? So maybe before we take this to the world, we should start practicing it in here. And we need to get it fixed quick. And when I say quick, I mean like right now quick. Because at 1201, we're going into the world with the 15-5 rule. So we need to be working on that now. But the 15-5 rule could change the world if, if we were able to do this. Have you ever noticed that you run into the same people over and over again? When you go to a restaurant, you're, you're waited on by the same waitress. When you go in a gas station and buy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, it's the same person behind the counter. And all it takes is, is starting with that little bit of kindness from us. And in a world where they get treated horribly working in the public, I guarantee you they will remember the person who smiles and asks them a personal question. And when you go to the gas station again next week and see them again, they're going, hey, that's that guy or that woman that was nice to me. And you have an opportunity to build on that and repeat. 
when Jessica and I were dating and when we got married, we, we found um, neither one of us was a very good cook. Still true today. We went out to eat a lot. I'd have, a, I'd, I'd have a mansion if we hadn't ate out so much. We went to this one Mexican restaurant at least once or twice a week, and it got to the point where we would walk into this restaurant, and there's a sign that says, please wait to be seated. We didn't stop at the sign. We went straight to our table, the same one we sat at every week. There were already two sweet teas sitting on the table. As we slid into our seats, the waitress comes by and slides the cheese dip on the table and said, I've got your food cooking. to be out in about three minutes. That's how much we went. That's a true story. They saw my truck pulling in the parking lot, and they had our food going for us. There was one waiter there named Juan, and we got to know Juan. He was overly friendly, <laughs> kind of run date night a couple times, and he just thought we were the greatest thing ever. And when I say he thought he was the greatest thing ever, I mean, he'd slide in next to me while I'm eating my food trying to visit with my wife. <laughs> but we got to know him and got to know his story, and we learned that he had moved to Batesville because he had been running around with some rough people and, and doing some rough things, and he was trying to straighten his life out. And through those conversations, just being kind to him and building a relationship with him. He never knew our names. He couldn't remember our names for the life of him. But we got to have deep conversations with him about God's love for him and what God can do in his life. And that's all we're asking us to do is just start acknowledging people with a heart of moving towards those gospel conversations. The second thing we need to do is be present. We're going to move faster here. Be present. Did you know the average attention span of an American is eight seconds? That's how long we focus on something before we're focused on something else. That's how long we read something before we skip and start reading something else. That's how long our social interactions last before we start thinking of something other than the people in front of us. And so when we give somebody more than eight seconds, when we zero in on them and we're f uh, present in the conversation, it says to them, I value you. I care about you. 72% of Americans describe themselves as lonely, that they're looking for social interactions, that they wish they had more friends, or they wish they had romantic interests, or they wish they were close to their family. And we can be the people to start the conversation and be present and say, I value you. This is worse in younger generations because of social media. So these people that walk around in the world and they feel forgotten and they feel overlooked and they feel like nobody cares for me, a smile and a, and a half a minute or a two minute conversation says to them, I love you. I noticed you, and I value you. The third thing is we need to learn to find value in every person. 85% of Americans struggle with self-esteem. That means that a majority of us in here struggle with self-esteem, me included. It means that 85% of Americans look in the mirror and they struggle to find value in themselves. They look in the mirror and they say, why am I here? I don't look like the models on TV. I'm not charismatic like the people that I work with. I'm not good at anything. They look in the mirror and they don't know why they're here. And that should be heartbreaking for a Christian. Because Christians know the value of a human being. We, we know the value of a person because our Bible tells us, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The value of every human being is uh, Jesus Christ giving His life on the cross. And it breaks my heart that people that God loves that much walk around not knowing that they're worth anything. This is the base of our belief that people are valuable to God. And so we need to start learning to find value in people. No matter how many flaws they may have. And we need to point that out to people. Giving compliments to people. It's a big morale booster. 
If you don't believe me, I dare you. Next Sunday, come sneak up behind me. I'll be putting my microphone on there at the last little bit before I get up here to preach. And right before I get up to preach, lean up there and whisper in my ear, Brian, you're the best preacher I've ever heard. And see if I don't hit this stage on fire. Seriously, do that. Not you, Mom. Okay? Uh, no, seriously. Not She's back here right now. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. But there's value in compliments because what compliments say is that I found value in you. And this is something you should value about yourself. And so we have the power with just a simple compliment to make people feel valuable and let them know the little bit, give a ray of light to how much God values them. And then we can open that conversation. In 1969, Woody Allen interviewed Billy Graham. It was a special on TV, and if you don't know Woody Allen, he's an agnostic. He's always found uh, religion kind of comical. He's lived his life a, a way that we probably wouldn't be uh, pleased with, and he had some good one-liners, making fun of Faith, making fun of Billy Graham, and Billy Graham, just as charismatic as ever, sat there, and he just laughed, and he took it, and it was it's a great interview. They both really enjoyed it, and you could tell there was a mutual respect between these two people. And they were taking questions from the audience, and an audience member comes up and gets to the microphone and said, uh, Woody, do you think you would make a good minister? We're talking about someone who has made a living making fun of religion. We're talking about, about someone who has sit here and just grilled the most charismatic evangelist in the 20th century uh, about what it means to be a Christian and joked with him. And you could tell Woody Allen was kind of at a loss for words for a second there. And Billy Graham goes, I want to answer that. Billy Graham, who had just, had just been made fun of, who had just had to laugh at himself, and who had made a few points, but he was really kind of, kind of being uh, mocked a little bit. He says, I, I can answer that with one word. Yes, Woody Allen would make a great minister. And he, and he looks at Woody Allen, this guy who's kind of been attacking him through this whole interview, and he says, Woody, you have a terrific mind. You're so smart. You can, you can do it all. And you have this amazing ability to communicate. That's really what it takes to be a good minister. Woody, you could do it. See, Billy Graham was able to look past the bad and look into Woody Allen and see the good. And we need to look at people and look past the bad, no matter how bad it is, and see the good and the value in them. Well, Brian, they hadn't taken a bath in two weeks. Well, value them for more than 10 feet, okay? Just like find value in people, find value for people that others wouldn't find and express that to them. Now, if you're like me, you're sitting here going, Brian, how am I going to fake this? <laughs> how am I, I going to pretend to like people that I don't really want to be around? That brings us to number four is we need to be genuine and open. I don't want you to go out selling used cars to people. Don't, don't go out pretending to like people. Let the love of Christ that's in you overflow out of your heart. Because see, here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that each of us is imperfect. And that's what makes God's love so special to us. Is that as we are imperfect, God loves us. I don't know who told Christians we have to wear this mask of perfection. I never sin. I've never done anything wrong. And you should be more like me. That's, that's not Christianity. Christianity says I struggle with sin. Listen, guys, Brian Coach struggles with sins that I beat down and I think I get them out of my life and they slip back in. And you all, every person in this room does as well. And so it's okay for us to be genuine and say, look, I, I struggle with some sins. And it's okay for us to be open and say, you know, I, I can't tell you all the answers, but I love you. And that's all that matters. And God loves you. Don't forget that we're called to love others first. And so this is our strategy, and we're going to repeat it and 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 repeat it again and again and again with the same people and with new people as we go out. That means that neighbor, the one that's not particularly friendly, that lets her dogs dig in our flower garden, 
we're, we're going to do that to them. Uh, that gas station attendant who, who really doesn't have very much customer service skills, we're going to do it with them. The waitress, who seems just a little stressed out, and my steak came out burnt instead of perfect like I like it, we're going to do it with them. Grocery stores, when we pass people in the aisles, we're going to do it with them. We are going to acknowledge the world, hoping to build relationships in which we can open the gospel conversation. This is the blue-collar formula to evangelism. It's not the easy way out, but it's the effective way. And that's what we care about. I don't want to check off a box and say, I witnessed to somebody today. I want people to come know Christ. And I know your heart that you want that as well. And so we must take the effective way. Now, undoubtedly, there's some of us sitting in here and going, Brian, that's all good and well. I'm not doing it. I'm here to check off my Jesus for the week, off my, off my list, get my church done. I'm not working for God on Monday through Saturday. I did my hour here. I, I know there's some of us here doing that because I've gone to church and done that. And, and my job is not to fix that. But I just want to remind you that one day, Jesus is going to ask you some questions. And we're going to have to explain to Jesus Christ, why did we take the greatest gift ever given to mankind? We took it, we accepted it, we took his salvation, but we didn't care enough about it to tell others about it. And we're going to have to explain to him why we can't do that. Now, here's the problem. As much as we talk about outreach, nothing will happen until we do this. Nothing is going to change until we make a decision. I'm leaving this church today. I'm 15 fiving tomorrow at work. I'm building connections. I'm going to compliment that person at work who gets on my nerves. I'm going to do it. Nothing changes until we get to that point. A lot of us thinking we can't do this. This isn't normal. This isn't easy. And I love the way Paul talks about himself. Paul says, you know what? It's not about me. It's about Christ in me. And so we're asking the wrong question. If we're asking, can I do this? Will I do this? Should I do this? We should be asking, can God do this? Would he do this? And should he do this? You know, if you open your Bible to the Gospels and you read about Jesus Christ, here's the theme that I get. Jesus Christ did not wait for people to walk into his life. He walked into theirs. And so if we want to know how we should affect people, we cannot wait for people to walk into our lives. We have to be intentional about walking into their lives. You see that clearly in the Gospels, but honestly, you can open any page of this Bible and you can see God walking into people's lives. You can see that in the story of Ruth. Ruth is an outcast goes to Israel where she gleans. And what that means is she goes to the fields after harvest time and anything that's dropped or left over, she picks it out of the mud and that's what she eats. And while she's gleaning, she catches the eye of the man who owns the farm that she's gleaning on, a man named Boaz. Boaz had no reason to love her. She was a Moabite. Had no reason to serve her. Had no reason to reach out to her. But he takes notice of her. He says, who's that woman over there? He says, drop some extra food for her. Make sure that you forget to cut some things so that she has food. Make sure that she has what she needs. And, and the story goes on talking about how Boaz continually reaches out to her, caring for her needs. Probably the reason for that is uh, Boaz remembers a time when his mother was an outcast in Israel. We learned about her last week, Rahab who was accepted and loved as in the family of God. And I think, I think Boaz was raised with that, not to judge people by their appearance, by their nationality, by the things that they had done wrong, but to accept the outcasts. And, and the whole story of Ruth comes to a crux when Ruth says, I, I want you to marry me. I, I want to be under your protection. I want to be your wife. W would you do that for me? And, and Boaz says, I want to marry you bad. Like he, he was in love. It's a Hallmark movie. I'm serious. Love at first sight. 
And he says, yes, but he said, here's the problem. I, I don't have the right to marry you. There's another man in Israel, and technically you're his responsibility. Let me see what I can do. And Ruth goes home and she tells Naomi, like, listen, um, he said he's going to try, but I don't know. And I love what Naomi tells her in chapter 3, verse 18. She says this. He says, he will not rest until the matter is settled. Our last take-home truth is this, is God will not rest until the matter is settled. What Boaz does is he goes and he finds that block to him marrying Ruth. He goes and finds that man who had the right to marry her. And he says, look, I want to marry Ruth. I want you to let me marry Ruth. And, and they negotiate until he purchases the right to marry Ruth. And then they get married and have kids and live happily ever after. Told you, Hallmark movie. But listen to this. This story tells us about the love of Jesus Christ and how he walks into people's lives. Jesus Christ will not rest until the matter is settled. See, Boaz is a type of Christ in the Bible. It's a real story, but, but this story represents what Christ does. There's this block to Jesus Christ taking us as his, own, as his own, and it's our sin. It's all the things that we've done wrong. It's all the things that separate us from God. And Jesus Christ wanted us so badly that he purchased us by giving his life and taking our punishment. So Jesus Christ, he, he does not rest. He does not, over, he does not stop. He overcomes every obstacle to be able to get the outcast for himself. There's some of us here today that may have been dealing, come down here, Brother Danny, that may have been dealing with a question of, are we going to make a big move? Are, are we going to do what it takes to come to Christ? Or are we going to be willing to leave our gods of worshiping ourselves? And are we willing to make that move to follow the one and true God? I just want to tell you this. There is nothing in life that you will love more than being a follower of Christ. But you have to step out and take his gift of faith. And so I want to invite you today, if you're sitting here and you've been wrestling, should I make that big move? I invite you to come up here and I, I would love to walk you through what it means to have faith in Him and how to place your faith in Him. And for the rest of us, I want us to address our hearts. Are we really so concerned about people that we're willing to go to the world and witness? Or are we content just coming to church?